Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Red Men Weekly Podcast. I'm Steve Hall here to bring you some of the best clips from our Red Men Plus shows this week. Just to let you guys know straight off the bat, these clips, well, the full shows of them are available in video and podcast form over from redmenplus.com. You can either watch them on your devices or you can download them into your native podcasting app. Get yourselves involved, redmenplus.com. If you sign up as a yearly club captain, so basically sign up for 12 months, it would usually cost you 50 quid for that. If you use the code weekly, W-E-E-K-L-Y, on the sign-up page, well, you can get it for 25 quid. Half price for the entire year. So go and get yourselves involved. And yeah, let's get on with the show. First of all, then, we spoke on the Bias Football podcast. Yes, it's... um, it's nice to huddle the team sometimes, especially if Liverpool aren't playing particularly well. Sometimes you can have a little laugh at other teams or you can begrudgingly praise them. But yet this week it was Paul, Chris, Dan and Chloe on the Bias Football Podcast. And here's what those quartet of wonderful, wonderful people had to say. Right, Chelsea, Dan. It's yeah. rubbish. Good to see. It is good to see. Yeah, it certainly is good to see. They um, just can't get it together whatsoever. Just they threw a whole heap truckload of money at the problem mid-season and it has done absolutely nothing to fix their ailments it seems um <laughs> which is brilliant because although we're obviously relatively down in the dumps with our own form it does give me a little bit of solace to look at a fellow sort of big head if you like a fellow big club yeah. really struggle and can't get their act together so yeah it's nice and we'll come on to this a little bit later but i've kind of i'm swinging myself on graham potter a little bit i'm not quite sure about him anymore i was a big fan I just don't know now. And you've turned. I've turned. I've, I'm turning the corner on Graham Potter. Yeah, I am. Chloe? Um, it's it's nice to see them be crap, especially after, like, you know, Enzo Fernandez must think, what the hell have I walked into here? Yeah. Or they might think, what the hell on... have we bought? Yeah, but, like, <laughs> Enzo Fernandez. He's I... not won a game for them yet. No. I reckon, though, you could slot him into United's team and he'd, he'd do brilliant. Yeah, I, I do. I just think. He's not worth 100 mil, let's get no. that out the way. <laughs> Absolutely not. But he's a decent footballer. But the fact that he must have came in and thought that I'd be able to turn something around, I'll be I'll be bossier. Um, I've got my big move. Lad, you should have just waited. Should have waited until the end of the season because, my God, good luck. I, I like that. I mean, I'm a big fan of that, particularly because it's the whole, they've gone and pushed the button on the release clause. So what they've done is they've gone and elevated the market because that'll have a knock-on impact. And Liverpool are going to, have to be very shrewd when they're doing business this summer because every sporting director in the world is going to be going, Enzo Fernandez, yeah. move mm-hmm. this. The best thing that could happen for us if, it's, if Enzo Fernandez is fucking shite for the rest of the season because you can go, that was clearly Chelsea being morons, mm-hmm. not them paying what he was worth because he clearly wasn't worth that amount of money. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I like it when people do those kind of things. But we had this conversation the other week and we talked about valuations on midfielders. And there's nobody breaks the. There's not lots of expensive midfielders. The reason why Artur's still in like the 
top five and that, and that kind of stuff. People talking about Casado could have been in, would have been in the top five or ten for most expensive. It's weird that they don't seem to move for loads and loads of money. So it's quite satisfying when they do and they're fucking rubbish. Chelsea are just fucked though, aren't they? I mean, like, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum to us, we didn't spend when we absolutely needed to. Mm. Yep. They needed to at the same time and went too far the other way. Yeah, and like, so the, the, the interesting thing for me is, there is there is not a, someone who's been calling FSG out forever on Twitter going that actually might have happened to us had we spent money mm-hmm. like yeah. th- like th- that could have genuinely happened to us you know we will never know because we didn't spend any fucking money <laughs> yeah. uh, but we did need to spend money like I'm not saying we didn't but like th- it doesn't just fix money just doesn't yeah. fix the problem no that's the other that, end that's of the, spectrum, the isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the th- that's the thing that thing it gives you solace in the fact is. You've got to have the right coach and you've got to have the right coaching staff and the players have got to want to learn and want to improve for a coach to make a difference. And it doesn't look like Chelsea believe that he's going to be there too much longer. I can't understand if Potter's still there. And I know, like, project and all this type of stuff. Chelsea aren't a project. Liverpool aren't a project team. Mm -hmm. These are two very, very good sides. Mm -hmm. They're not projects. Like, Liverpool have been at the top a year ago. Yeah. That's not a yeah. project, is it? You know what I mean? Chelsea have won European Cups in the last three years. Mm-hmm. They're not a project no, side. Exactly. They they weren't that far away. You've just somehow managed to steer them further away. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I think that's the case. It's it's everyone wanked themselves to death in the summer when Ronaldo joined Man United, and mm-hmm. it was all this like the whole this whole winning the transfer window things, and it. You're right. It's the lack of self awareness for the people who get so lost in, and you've got to spend, you've got to spend, you've got to buy, you've got to buy, you've got to buy, and and you need to clear, differentiate the difference between people who thought think Liverpool should spend on what they need, and the people who think Liverpool should spend endless, cosmic sums of money just for shits and giggles. It's two different things. It's what you're saying as well. Um, but I, I do, I love, I love it when it goes wrong like that, and it does. It it, ten, it tends to the team that wins the transfer window very rarely wins anything Evan. else. Everybody yeah. was, yeah. By the way, that Wesley Fafana, that's another one. Didn't he spend 70 sort of mil on him and he instantly got injured? He might be back mm. now. The thing with Chelsea is, I mean, we can talk about injuries because they suffered quite a lot of injuries, but now they've got quite a lot of those players back and I don't think they know their best, their best 11. They've got a Sterling, you, you, you saw him the other day, haven't, mm. like... Don't know whether he's in and out the team. The or... Yeah, yeah. Uh, just saw our Raja yeah. the other day. You know, down uh, I'd the, uh, never Morrison's. call him that sadly, but it, it's never okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think Graham Potter knows their best side. I don't think anyone knows their best side. I don't know how many. Aside he doesn't from... know most of the names, Chloe. That's no, the problem. That is still, a problem. There's so <laughs> many of them. That, that was the joke the <laughs> other day. Engolo still Kante. walking around Chelsea with name tags on. Yeah, Engolo Kante came back to train no, us a that he's looking around thinking who the fuck are all these people yeah, like, yeah. where's Thomas Tuchel got yeah. all these it's like sat, he's like sits down like goes back normal goes back into training hangs his coat up yeah. on the same peg and he sits yeah. down he's like who's next to me yeah, <laughs> yeah. have I have I come in the wrong have I got have I have, Wait, I, have, I, have, I, have I driven to Leicester <laughs> by mistake here like yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the thing, that Mudrick good player shot 90 million they spent mm. on him is someone I don't understand how much they've spent here on players that are just not worth. I'm not saying they're not good players, but the amount of money that it's they've spent is ridiculous. It's not how you win a footy anymore, though, because and I think it's got overlooked in in all the takeover stuff, and people are overlooking it a bit with Manchester United of Qatar coming and take over, and other people continue to come in. It you've still got you're gonna have all of a sudden like four mega rich sides. 
it's not necessarily really increasing. You're not more like you're going to win the league. No one's going to dominate in the same way. And just buying loads and loads of money, expensive players, doesn't work. It, the footy's changed. There's got to be some science behind what mm. you're doing. There's got to be a clearly driven plan because, yeah, because well, if you it, do that, Man United it, would have won well, the thing, right? for a if, decade. If, 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 let's say, let's say we cap the players at 100 billion for the sake of this point, there isn't that many 100 million pound players. They're just not that many that are worth the absolute top dollar. Mm-hmm. Like so, Chelsea end up spending this these huge sums of money on players that actually you might be 40, 50 million pound players because yeah. there are players that are out there of similar quality that have moved in the last twelve months for forty or fifty million quid to the ones they've bought for twice yeah. as much. So spending money isn't the the be all and end all. It's getting the right player in mm. for a price that you're comfortable with, and I think that's something that Liverpool have shown over the the last few years. Not recently, of course, and, and one thing that you know Spearman and Ian Graham and all those analytics people have said is if the right player is available and we think he's available for the price we believe he's worth, then we'll buy him. And Alisson was available for a price that looked... Everyone else in the league went, Liverpool are fucking stupid for spending that much on a goalkeeper, but Liverpool were comfortable with it. And I used this on on a deep dive the other day, is when I went to um, Africa on my honeymoon, and you get into the bartering system with them, and it's like, I started to just look at it and go, I reckon that's worth about 25 quid to me. And I don't care what you're trying to sell it for, to me for. Because mm. if I think it's worth 25 quid and I give you 25 quid and you you think you've got away with 20 pounds more than it's worth, then I'm not out of pocket here because mm-hmm. I've got something that I deem is worth 25 quid. Yeah, yeah. Liverpool mm-hmm. deemed Allison and Van Dyke were Absolutely, worth the money yeah. that they paid. So it didn't matter what the price was. Chelsea, and again, we talked about this and we'll see in the fullness of time. You know, because we were talking about the whole the, the 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 super length of contracts, the player amortization, and all that, and they feel like they found this great loophole. And everyone's going mad about it. It's what happens in a year and two years and three years and four years time for them. And when so when PSG started, when PSG broke football by buying Neymar, and they kickstarted this all. They said the market through the roof because that's the knock-on effect that means then Philippe Coutinho is the hundred and something odd million pound that we sold him for and Usman Dembele becomes that and then everything goes nuts off the back is that you inflate the market. PSG can afford to inflate the market because they don't care what things cost and their job was to drive Barcelona out of business and to drive Real Madrid out of business and all those things because eventually, and this is what happened to Barcelona, why Barcelona are fucked is because everyone was trying to poach Messi constantly and they're left paying Messi more money than you should ever play a football. Nobody can afford to pay what Messi was being paid at Barca but they had no choice but to continue down that route. Man United had therefore Man United buy into that because then you've got to maintain your place at the top of the food table and the only way it's a food chain, the only way to do that is to match those valuations because you get pressure from your fans you get pressure from other the other other market forces because there's other teams in your league who can't who can do that and unless you've got bottomless funds you're eventually going to be fucked and that's what chelsea chelsea have gone in and try and it looks like because the very abramovich move like the flex and the muscles going right look we can do this we can spend all this money I just don't think they're like that anymore. You know, they, they and it's when they come to do one of two things, they come to the realization that one of those really expensive footballers needs to get moved on because mm. he doesn't fit or he's a bad influence. And the manager's just like, he's got it. You've got to get him to fuck, get him out of my side. And who wants to buy them? Whether it's on wages or who's going to pay the value that you think he's worth. And the other one comes when you then then go to buy your next player. 
and everyone goes, well, we know you've got stupid money, so the starting price is 90 million mm. on a footballer when they try to put the genie back in the bottle and they can't. And that's where Chelsea... And there's lads there. then asking for eight-year contracts because yeah. why wouldn't you? Yeah. Unsilly money as well because yeah. they've seen it before. You're absolutely right, yeah. I don't know, the Chelsea thing, the mad one to me, and the top bowl league sort of had to promise a certain amount of cash in him when he took over. There was a certain... Like, he didn't have money. to spend it in six weeks. He didn't have to spend <laughs> it, is the point. Yeah, yeah exactly. Christ. Absolutely that. And I think, I think there is definitely... It's, so- like, it's like going a little big on your wedding vibe. How's that, isn't it? And they're trying to deliver it in the thing. You've got like 50 years there, yeah, like, you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly, just, yeah. just relax. It's definitely a vanity thing for me, though. I think you're right. I think Chelsea fans were kind of uneasy with what they were going to be after Abramovich. I think Top Bowley was kind of saying, Oh, no, it's all right. Look at us. We'll be sound. We'll spend all this cash and just throw money around. Like, every time a different club, like one of their perceived rivals, was linked with someone, he was like, No, I'll come in and take him instead and offer 20 more million than the other club. It was chaotic, like, scattergun. And on my Graham Potter point earlier, I think he's quite a reserved, sort of calm manager who would have been sort of approaching it in the right way. The way Liverpool approached their chances, really, that's what he'd have liked to have done. Whereas above him, he's got this maniac running around saying, you're having him, you're having him. There's no way on this earth Graham Potter would have said, go and sign me 10 players. I don't care where you get them from, get me 10 different footballers. And then he's got, he's like, he's not that guy and he's been left. I kind of feel sorry for him in a sense, but... That, Potter probably wants to work. He's implementing his system that's, that's difficult to do by yes, the looks it is, of it. Yeah. He probably wants to work with 17, 18 lads like Jürgen did in the, in the first instance. Very similar. To understand, so that everyone understood that. He's like, well, hang on a minute. I'm now trying to teach another new 10, ten guys. I haven't even finished teaching these guys. I've only mm-hmm. known them for four weeks Everything or started. something. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think you're right. I think Potter, but this is why I think Potter's the wrong man for the job. Cheers, Paul, Chris, Dan and Chloe. I'm sure you guys listening along loved that one indeed. Right, next up then. Thank goodness gracious me, Liverpool finally won a game of footy, didn't they? Oh, how amazing was that? Yes, it was Liverpool nil. No, it wasn't. It was, I'm used to saying that. It was Liverpool two. It was Wolverhampton Wonders nil. And Paul had the pleasure of hosting Steve Plunkett and John Reid on the final words, yeah? A final word, we actually talk about Liverpool winning a game of footy. They haven't been too frequent this season. There was a couple, and then it died off a little bit, but here's one back for you. Here's Paul Stee and John celebrating Liverpool's win over Wolves. Fabinho. I quite liked Fabinho's performance. Um, I still will caveat this with I don't think this is vintage Fabinho, but the one that I think was the most encouraging, John, was when he went to back in their, in their box in the first half. Mm. And he's not, this season, he's just not been at it. He's not been at it there. He's been late to everything. He's not been reading stuff particularly well. But to front foot, press, win the ball back, and the ball, it's off to Nunes. He doesn't quite manage to thread it through. But you can see that. you know He sees that. He, he, he That's back to Fabinho, reading of the game, being at where it should be. He knows... This guy's got his back turned. I'm going to pick it up, and he immediately knows he's going to get the ball into the centre forward uh, or into centre forward position. Um, that was a that was a real yeah a real note of encouragement on the sort of rehabilitative process of Fabinho. Yeah, he, he, he's had a few of these games, hasn't he? Where he's, he's looked more like himself, if you like, in terms of trying to do these things, and then they haven't always come off, if you like. But like. The thought to do them like there seems to be that run of about sort of six to eight weeks where like every where he was bad but also where every week you just see the the camera or in the ground you'd see it cut to the manager and you'd just be kicking off for him constantly and like I feel like there's been a lot less of that in the last couple of weeks and like I said whether that's he's less in his own head if you like in terms of you know that but he he's such a 
even when he's just good, not when he's great, he's such a calming presence in midfield just because of how he is with the ball. He he has such a weird, obviously, because of like his you know his, his stature. He's just sort of like I think other players sort of don't know how to tackle him sometimes because he's just he's just so gangly. But um, like he he did he sort of played off that last night. I think he was very sort of good in terms of his like his positioning with his body and stuff in terms of controlling the ball. Um, I think that's where some of the things later on in terms of some of the tackles and stuff come in, some of the chances from Wolves, but. Um, going forward as well, I mean, at our best under under Jurgen with Fabinho, he, he's been a man who started a lot of our attacks from yeah. sort of the base midfield and wasn't quite that last night, but he, he, he the fact that he was looking up and looking forward, as you say, and building that relationship, I guess, sort of something to see that maybe a bit flourish a bit more with Nunes, sort of like looking to get it into the attack a bit more. That's where we've been starved a lot from him, I think, in the last maybe six months. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, the booking that he picks up as well, stay, it's just, Stupid. It's absolutely stupid. And normally, you know, this season it's been because Fabinho's been stupid. Um, it's not. It was again dreadful refereeing. It's a it's a reckless tackle by Lamina. Mm. The Fabinho does well not to get his ankles broken in. And every <clears> again, <throat> everyone in the crowd, like it's so obviously our free kick. And then there's like the the rook of players around. And I think Fabinho's body language has been so weird, particularly actually post World Cup. Really, really weird. You know, like like he's almost been begging to be booked with some of his tackles yeah. at times. The genuine look of shock on his face when he received the yellow card for getting snapped kind of told you everything you, you need to know there, really. That's the referee getting it wrong, not Fabinho. Well, I turned to the lad next to me and said, Lamina might be in a bit of bother here. Because his first touch is terrible. It comes off the stud plate. He reaches for it. We spoke off air. The only reason he didn't get a red card is because he didn't go over the top of the ball. It's mm -hmm. a horrendous first touch, followed by an awful tackle. I think. I think there's a. I think you made the point. I think there's a case to say that there's a slight stamp in terms of how Fabinho lands after the tackle, and there's an argument to say he knew what he was doing. A small argument to say that, but then John sort of comes back and says he's not really in control of what he's doing, so it's a difficult one. No, he it's gets hard. he gets tackled and, he, yeah. and he, his body spins because he's trying to avoid the. Yeah, he's yeah. trying to get past the man and look, his, his foot comes down. The problem you've got there again. John, you know, the, the angle that sells Fabinho's side is the cop angle. <laughs> when you see it from Tierney's side, he, he's obviously looking at Fabinho making contact. But again, you're starting to, it's reading intent and it goes back to it like not, a, not, a, not, whether it's a lack of understanding of physics or biology or just how football is. Fabinho is fouled and it knocks him into this position and we're going to come on to another situation very important to the, to the, to the balance of the game where that happens later on as well. It just goes to show Tierney is just a fucking rubbish referee. Yeah, um, he's just so like out of touch with it, isn't he? In terms of like just the application of it, like he, you, you think you think when it sort of thing is that it, you know it might go like over to like a VAR check or something, but he just he, he, the second all the sort of players got round him, you just sort of think oh, I think he but he I don't get like how he could see that situation as anything other than that, you know, because it's. It, it, to give him a yellow is almost to suggest this is sort of the point I was making to stay is that it's to suggest that he's done it vindictively mm -hmm. and like I don't think but for whatever you can accuse Fabinho of in terms of like he can be hard in a tackle like he, he's not he's never been a vindictive player in that sense um, so it just didn't seem you know to be the case and it's it's not even that it's like you've had the build up of the, the three or four seconds before where you've seen you've seen Lamina have the bad touch and sort of have to try and chase after it to be a bit like oh he's out of control here he's lost control of the ball so he, he's so I think, I think, I think 
Steve said earlier in terms of him like not giving him a second yellow later in terms of some of the challenges later on, which were probably worse. I think he knew after the fact that he'd sort of messed up and you know he's had he's had more that you, you could write a list, couldn't you, of the stinkers fourteen he's had referee in our games, but um nah, he's just it was just a really, really like I think Fabinho's face was exactly how I put it in the ground felt. We were like, what, what is this? I think we look we, we chronologically sort of <coughs> leaping ahead here, you know, ultimately the first half was a bit I thought it was a bit drab. It was very one of those situations that we've had. And I mentioned this in the post-match videos that we've had nil-nils in Anfield after a halftime. Loads, loads. I always talk, I always refer to like Huddersfield. And I remember coming to halftime and being like, oh, no. and then we just turned up and we just beat the team in the second half. We were very good at the best of Klopp in making 90-minute football matches, 30-minute football matches, knowing that we had more in the tank and more going on and we were we were just going to score eventually when they when hearts and lungs and everything and brains started to get a bit tired, Liverpool had just put you to bed. So this game had a little bit of that, but maybe from our perspective, the lack of trust that it would ultimately happen. And that's why I thought it was, it was important the way we did tackle the second half. But just to t- allow us to bridge back into how terrible Paul Tierney is, um, which is all I'm doing here, <laughs> by the way. Um... The disallowed goal. So I feel a bit sorry for Darwin Nunes, and I shouldn't because he does it to himself. Like you've se- you've scored the goal, you've celebrated, it's calmed down. There's clearly a VAR check going on because the referee's not ordering everyone back to the centre circle to then go and celebrate again, and he's done that a couple of times for us now. It's like, mate, just like just 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 chill a bit. I in real time. I didn't see it. I didn't see the Jota foul. I saw a bunch of bodies on the floor and thought there's been a coming together there. There were a couple of guys around me saying, I think Jota's fouled in there. But that came about because you see Tierney's not just given, straight given the goal and, and, and cracked on with it. So you do tend to think, what could that have been? What could that have been? And I can see when you play it in slow motion, Jota's foot comes out and clips the guy. But I can also see, Steve, Joe Jota runs through their team, runs into the box, gets a shove in the back yeah. and falls and in fall and takes out the, the guys around him and is then penalised for it. So I, it's mad to me that it, I feel like they've gone, look at the contact that Jota's made and totally overlooked the contact that, that, that sends Jota into that situation. I was thinking about that in the car on the way home. That's where individual interpretation from VAR comes in rather than running the game to the lesser of the law. He does get shoved. And if you think about there's two situations there and the referees reacted on the second one, it's exactly the same type of logic in the Fabinho yellow card in that there's two incidents and, and they're both against Liverpool players, yet the decision goes with the opposition. So, yeah, it's the hanging leg, isn't it? He leaves a leg out. I think it's Kilman he catches and, and takes him down. As soon as he feels contact, he goes down because he knows Wolves are in trouble. So he's, he's played that situation. It's it's a difficult one um, because he, he does get a bit of contact, but in and around the box, there will be contact. I don't know whether it's enough contact on, on Jota to reverse that decision. Um, and, and as you say, Darwin finishes it and then celebrates and then stops and salutes the cop. And he's just living in the moment, isn't he? When he when he does those things and 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 getting, you know, it's it's difficult when when it's got clearly going to a VAR check and and when he does this, you think, oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. When do they ever go in your favour when they do that? So tough one. Interesting point. Um, uh, Michael Reed uh, on Twitter 
Michael underscore Reed 11, excellent follow by the way, uh, tweeted, Liverpool have gone 32 games without a penalty in the Premier League. They've had 1,138 touches in the opposition box in this run. That's the most touches in the box any side has ever had over a run of Premier League games without getting a single penalty on Opta's records. Um, Yeah. I just, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, are we just, are all our players pricks? You know what I mean? And like, and, and, and they're horrible to referees and then referees have somehow got like, oh, do they all look like the kids that bullied the referees in school? And so it's somehow like they're trying to enact some like long-term revenge or something, John, because that's insane. Because we, you know, it happens time and time and time again. And that's the thing about it. The Jota one. You know, it's 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 as much a penalty for Diogo Jota as it is a foul on, you know, for Wolves. It is, and it's like you wonder with VAR, like there's so often now when they check goals, checking, and then they're going, all right, well, there's, there's no foul there, but is there an offside in the build-up? And like Steve said, well, you checked that and said there was a foul from Jota. Why haven't you checked further back? But it's um, I I I think you know it, it's been sort of apocryphal in football, but like. You wonder if there is sort of a narrative around maybe parts of the team you're saying there about the players, but you know, Darwin sets the tone at the start of the season, doesn't he, with that red card? Is there sort of as that sort of followed him through? Because you can see how he is sometimes on the pitch in terms of that he is a bit chaotic. Yeah. Is, is the word that people love to use. But um does that sort of follow him? Maybe not necessarily just him, but like the, the forwards, does that follow them round a lot? You know, um there's been that narrative for a long time around Salah in terms of penalties, hasn't he? Like what's he gotta do to get a pen in terms yeah. of how, how he's man handled. So I do think there probably is some of that in it. And I do think, you know, it's an insane number and these freak numbers do happen periodically in football. But, just, you, you know, you look at something like that and it's blatant, isn't it? And you feel as if, like, given all the sorts of, you know, all the, the eyes VARs had over the last three or four years, whatever it is, it's, however long it's been with us in the league, like, surely they've got to get something like that, right? The one thing they sold it on was that it's it's just going to be for goals. Like, you know, it will get goals, right? We'll make sure goals, right? And then we'll... There's a textbook example, as as Steve's explained, like of where you've got it wrong. You've looked at the second instance and not at the first. Yeah, and the good thing about it ultimately is, it was an excuse for I think Liverpool to go, oh poor old Liverpool, here it is again. Our oh, looks against us, you know, it was a couple of I said a couple of stupid yellow card decisions, um, a just generally incompetent referee and Wolves being quite physical and, and tough and kicking us a lot. And again, they drag it on. The atmosphere wasn't particularly buoyant um, throughout the game. And then you've got a goal disallowed. But actually, I got a real feeling after that, Steve, was the team just went, right, no. Nope. No more of this. We're going to go and get the goal that we need. And I actually thought Virgil van Dijk totally typified that, that attitude. He got angry. Yeah. And when Virgil van Dijk gets angry, he's... He proves that he's the best centre-half on the planet. Cheers to Paul and the lads for that one. Yeah, here's two more victories, fingers crossed. Yeah, This week on Expert Insight, moving on then. Dan Club, the man who goes and reaches out to everybody and chats to them. Uh, this week, he was joined by Stefan Szymanski. Um, he's a renowned business author. He wrote such books as Soconomics, Money and Football as well. He's also a professor, a professor of sports management at the University of Michigan. So when it, can, when it comes to sports and when it comes to finance, Stefan knows exactly what he's on about. Dan ha- asked Stefan about FSG's ownership, the search for investment, the money ball strategy, and loads, loads more. So yeah, here is a clip from Expert Insight with somebody who knows exactly what they're talking about. 
since the report of potential sale or investment, there have been quite a lot of interested parties, shall we say, in terms of various reports saying that places from here and here and here could be interested in taking over Liverpool. Um, just generally, I won't ask about any one group or nation there in particular, but we have seen reports from uh, different articles saying there might be interest in the Middle East um, and Qatar especially. Now, we've also seen the Qatar interest in Manchester United more recently. What do you make? The Premier League still is a huge... It's a hugely attractive proposition for money from that area of the world, isn't it? And do you think that will still be the case even after what happened to Manchester City this week? I know it's all allegations right now. They've been charged with over 100 breaches. Do you think that will put any buyers off necessarily? I mean, I, I suppose it's conceivable, but actually I, I honestly doubt it quite a lot. I mean, so one thing, of course, in the Gulf, they are every bit as fanatical about English football mm. as the English are. I mean, it's just, it's just it, it's a complete it, you know it, it completely rules their lives. I mean, we wrote about this in 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 Soconomics, you know, yeah. um, the, the 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 centrality of of football and of often English football to Arab life and to particularly in, in the Gulf region, mm-hmm. but also you know in places like Egypt, Syria, Jordan. Um, Lebanon and so on. It, yeah. it, it, it's it's hard to understate. So I don't think they're going to lose interest in English football just because Manchester City gets into some financial trouble. And as you say, we'll we'll, we'll see where where that ends up. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did. So what the, the, I think the problem. I mean, this is going to be a problem for Liverpool fans. You, you, on the one hand, you should want these investors in the sense that they will have deep pockets and yeah. that you will be able to have good players and they will keep the club at the forefront of um uh, you know at, at the top of, of the premier league and and, and in any european competition on the other hand you have to acknowledge that that's it's going to be sport washing right it's yeah. going to be a um they will be using this to present a popular image to themselves and to um take people's minds off things like lack of uh, women's rights in these countries um lack of uh, basic freedoms that we think would normally think are important mm-hmm. um treatment of migrant workers and so forth and so um you know that's where you are if you're it's a little bit where you are if you're a Manchester City fan if you're a Newcastle fan if you're a Paris Saint-Germain fan you have to deal with with all of that because I think on the other hand the the other kind of investor you you might you might end up with is um a um private equity fund mm-hmm. And private equity funds have been coming into football in a big way. And they're, in some ways, if you're a fan, they're pretty scary as well um, because they are just about making money. They are about taking over the club and seeing how they can make more money out of out of you. And what's what's uh, what's worrying about that is that sometimes these equity fund, private equity funds have the odd idea that spending less on players is a route to success, mm-hmm. which of course it's not, then they might have some strange obsession that they know how to do this with analytics and Moneyball and blah, blah, blah. And that, I think, that is a, can, can end up being very unhappy. And, of course, the third thing is jack up the prices of everything. The truth is that, I mean, what we're seeing, and this is this is going on in private equity in a lot of areas, private equity, so what? So one thing, just sort of playing for your viewers, what say just a few words about private equity, mm-hmm. what, Private equity used to be this kind of thing where people um, managers would go in and they buy up a business 
they would um, uh, close down half of the activities, fire three quarters of the workers, and then make a business out of what was left and then sell it off in five years at a big profit. And this was in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. This was a huge profit generator. Pretty gross, to be honest. But mm. um, nonetheless, it was a, it was a very profitable business. Private equity is changing now and it's not doing that anymore because most of those kind of opportunities have gone. So now what they rather than look at seeing how you cut costs, now they're looking at situations where people have an unlimited willingness to pay and jacking up the prices. And so uh, the kinds of examples, I'll give you some, something completely different. In the United States, a large number of veterinary surgeons are being bought up by private equity funds. Okay. Why? Because if your dog's sick, you'll pay anything. And so they're exploiting that willingness to pay. And of course, football fans are right at the top of that list mm. of people who could potentially pay anything. So the scary thing for, for a Liverpool fan ought to be well, if we got taken over by a private equity fund, mm. everything's going to double, triple in price. No, yeah, that's, that's insane to think. And like you touched upon earlier, it's already costly enough. I mean, the Premier League football clubs make a lot of money from broadcast rights and what have you. That's why the Premier League is one of the leading lights in world football right now. But God only knows it costs a lot to, to buy the TV right to watch from a personal point of view or ticket prices. And the, the prices of everything are just extortionate at the moment when it comes to football, unfortunately. Um so that's Middle East interest and potential investment taken over, taken care of. One thing you've touched upon previously, Stefan, was possible interest in the Far East. Is that something you can see as a possibility when it comes to Liverpool? I think the sort of the line there was, is Liverpool are such a, a popular football club in that part of the world that potentially some of your billionaires who live over there and live, live in East Asia, they could be interested potentially in Liverpool Football Club? Yeah, I, I, I think I think without question that that's possible. The, I mean, the issue is where I mean, the obvious place is China. Right. But yeah. And of course, we knew five was about five years or more ago. Now, there was a sudden uptick in Chinese investment. Uh, we know President Xi is a big football fan. And so, it, you know, that was that was meant to that was thought to be something that he was going to promote. And there was this temporary growth of interest. Oh, yeah. But that seems to have scaled back in a significant way. And. The idea of a, of a of a you know it's not impossible that a Chinese billionaire might look at it, but but becoming less and less likely. But of course, there are other there are other billionaires out there, so you could go down the list, uh, you know. And certainly, you know, obviously in, in Thailand, Malaysia, um, you see a lot of uh, a lot of fan interest. Indonesia, there's a lot of fan interest. So there's no mm -hmm. reason to think that those regions couldn't produce them. And of course. I think that's the thing to wait. The, the 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 reason that the the amount of money that these businesses are sold for is growing so much is not necessarily so much because the amount of money coming in is growing, although it is, as you point out, in broadcast mm. rights and mm. ticket prices and so on. Yeah. But actually, because just there's a growing number of billionaires on the planet, and you know these are what are sometimes described as trophy assets. So the the idea is. You know, it's the prestige. It, they're mm -hmm. not so different from the yacht. And of course, if you but if you're going to have a yacht, you, your prestige is gained by having the biggest yacht. The longest yacht is the thing that you have to have. Yeah. And you know, they measure the, the how many meters long they are, and you know, and they compete on that level. Well, you know, sports is the same. You're competing on the success. So, in that sense, as you have, there's more and more competition as we have more and more billionaires. So it's mm -hmm. not unlikely that the price of these 
uh, buying the clubs is not is going to go up and up and up. Yeah, absolutely. If you were a billionaire with multi-billion pounds, I think sort of having a football club with the stature of Liverpool and indeed Manchester United, I'm loathe to mention them, but I probably should, <laughs> as, part, as part of your portfolio would look very impressive. And that's what it is for so many of these people. So many of them have got that many billions of pounds, particularly in certain parts of the world, that it is just a, a status thing, if you like. And, and Liverpool may well fall into those hands at some point further along the way. Um, one other possibility, Stefan, before we let you go, for Liverpool takeover wise or investment wise, is it was I think it was reported recently by Liverpool Echo actually about possible further investment from Redbird. Now, obviously, another American-based company. Is there anything where, where are they at in terms of their investment? I think they invested heavily sort of last year. Do you think there's anything in those reports that they could sort of reinvest again? Are they are they thriving at the moment? Would you say? I mean, I think Redbirds certainly seem to have an interest in European football. I mean, they've they've other investments, and yeah. and and um, I yeah, I I think um, I mean, again, these 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 private equity funds have um a lot of interest in. I mean, they just seem to be very interested in European football deals. I mean, they're often looking at deals where they buy a share of the broadcast rights nowadays. Okay. So they see that as a, as an alternative to buying the clubs. But I mean, I think certainly if you bought into Liverpool, you know, two or three years ago, um, and you thought of what price it would sell for now, I think you're looking at something that's probably quite an attractive rate of return. I mean, basically that's that's the thing. These people are looking at what did I pay to get in and what do mm. I get when I go out? And and so it's it's a it's a entry exit story of financial return so it's simply that it's just the numbers and and in some ways that's a little scary for fans i think because that's uh i mean one bear in mind if we're going through this phase of private equity coming into european football we've been through the phase of public equity before in the 90s when you know we had 20 20 english clubs floated on the stock exchange after Manchester United and after Manchester United, they all failed. It was mm-hmm. all a catastrophe. So my view of this is that as a movement, you know, the this is this seems to be something that's happening at the moment. But the last time this tried it, it failed, and it wouldn't surprise me if it failed miserably again. Thanks very much to Dan for hosting. Thanks very much for Stefan for joining us, giving up his time as well. Some really, really fascinating stuff. If finances and sporting models and all that is your cup of tea, then you will enjoy that one. Uh, speaking of shows I enjoy, Jano Insight is next. It was me. It was Neil Jones as well, talking about another Liverpool transfer link. So, yes, we've had loads and loads and loads of these. Well, here's another one for you. Liverpool were recently linked with Alexis McAllister, the Brighton and Argentina star, yet the 24-year-old World Cup winner. Apparently, his dad was at Anfield. There's been loads and loads of rumours swirling. So I asked Neil a little bit about it, and here's what Gold.com's Neil Jones had to say. We always thought our transfers in the show. It never stops, even a week after the transfer window closes or whatever. We're out a little month here now. But um, the latest news cycle brings Alexis McAllister onto the Liverpool radar. So the reports uh, saying that his agent was spotted at the Real Madrid game, sitting among Liverpool officials. Uh, according to Footy Insider, they've been an interested registered in the, the World Cup winner as well. It feels like every single week, Neil, there's a, a different midfielder's name being wheeled out. Some of them are consistent. I heard you Bellingham's name. We've we've heard Nunes, we've heard Mason Mount, blah, blah, blah. The list goes on and on and on. And now it's it's a time for Alexis McAllister. Um I think it, the the reporting was he's ready for his big move. And obviously, post-World Cup, that obviously makes a lot of sense. If he's going to get one, it might be now. But is he a player who's ever come across the Liverpool radar before the last couple of months? Like I say, it feels like 
he's never really been one anyone's considered, but he's had a he's had a very good obviously had a good World Cup. He's he's standing right and having a pretty good season. But I was quite I'll be honest that the this link was a one that kind of took me a little bit by surprise. If truth be told, I hadn't even considered him if if, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's true that for a start. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. it's his dad, isn't it? His agent, um, yeah. Carlos. Who, if you've seen him, he looks like a an old Scottish uh, midfielder. If you if you've seen him, <laughs> how, how he looks, uh, ginger hair doesn't not your typical sort of Argentinian look. But um, I don't know if that's true that he was he was at Anfield for the for the Real Madrid game, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's a player, isn't he? Who who is who should be looking for a move really? If you've just won the the World Cup and you're playing for Brighton, no disrespect. I think you 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 feel like you've got opportunities there to go somewhere else. I mean, it's interesting because when you do sort of the background on players, and I did some background on Caicedo and sort of some statistics. You know, it was before Liverpool played them in the in the league or the cup. Um, and you're looking at what Caicedo does and what Caicedo might be good at and what what type of midfielder he is or where he stands out. And McAllister sort of stood out almost in every category above him. You know, it was almost like Caicedo was sort of top five, but McAllister's up there. And, you know, it feels like he gets he gets through an awful lot of work statistically anyway in terms of tackles and passes and chances created and recoveries and things like that. So he's clearly a player who's, who's having a very good season. He's probably had a very good couple of seasons. Um, You know, he's his stars in the ascendancy. And you'd expect if Brighton have got anything about them, they'll be thinking we can make an awful lot of money off one or both of these two. They, you know, they, they they turned down an awful lot of money in January for Caicedo. Um, so I don't expect them to let McAllister go on the cheap. Uh, I haven't heard Liverpool being being in for him other than other than the fact that you know he's obviously a good player. You know, that's that that goes without saying, really. Um Brighton are having a little bit of a drop off, aren't they? I think they're not they're not sort of not maintaining that early season form. But He's uh he's feared his reputation definitely and yeah it'd, it'd be interesting to know if that was true um that it, that that the you know it would be it would be fairly significant wouldn't it if Carlos McAllister was there with with the Liverpool officials it would be I mean it'd be quite a public um sort of hint to drop wouldn't it to, to have to have a player's father and agent with the uh, the club delegation in a match like that um but yeah maybe there'll maybe there'll be another story there a reason for that. He signed for Real Madrid. Uh, that's I mean, it's it's it, it come from the guys at football transfers. By the way, if anyone wants to go and check that out, it's there for you to go and read yourselves. Um, yeah, first things first. I was I, when I googled him, I I I didn't realize he was only twenty four. He's a bit like me. He looks like a lad who's uh, had a hard paper arm. But also the 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 point you made before about Brighton and the Casado stuff. Obviously Chelsea and Arsenal are really trying really hard to get him. They are a club who uh, with an owner who's got a history of gambling for a start. So maybe that that leads into this. But like. They are not an you know they're not a team which is easy to get players out of. You can get players out of Brighton, but they are really really good at getting every every possible thing. So I was thinking on this one, it's like if we are, we all know the Jude Bellingham stuff is real and they're probably going to do everything. We've we've heard more stuff coming out every single day about him. Then there's links to Nunes. Then there's links to Mason Mount. It's like to add an Alexis McAllister on top of it. This is where the fees start getting absolutely enormous because a World Cup winner. You know, with all due respect, they were asking for eighty million for Casado. I think was what Arsenal were quoted. Yeah. Why on earth would he accept anything less with Alexis McAllister? That's that's the that's where we're at with a, a World Cup winner and the selling club who are happy to keep all the players. They're in no rush to let people go because their financial situation is quite stable. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the problem with buying players from the Premier League, isn't it? You know, Premier League is where the money's at. So yeah. Premier League clubs don't have a. They only have a small select group of clubs they can sell to, but obviously that that means that they can. 
dictate the price almost, doesn't it, in terms of make it what they want. So it's it's not the same as buying from, you know, Dortmund's a little bit of a, a different example. But if you're buying from Serie A or La Liga, you know, you, you're able to you're able to, to know the sort of the price is going to be a little bit more manageable. If you're buying from Premier League clubs, you know there's a premium on top because they're, they're in such a good financial situation, aren't they? And Brighton have sold very well in, in recent years, you know, with Kukurea and Ben White and Basuma and people like that. So they've they've managed to to refresh their squad without sort of, you know, going into the net spend sort of argument. They, you know, they, they've been able to pay for their own investments, if you like, and, and, and manage to get better and better as well. Even even with the manager, haven't they? They were able to, to bank some good money for the manager and then appoint someone who arguably is doing an even better job since then. So uh they they won't they won't be too worried, I don't think. I don't think they'll be sort of you've even seen with Caicedo, I think that they showed a lot of metal and gumption at the back end of the window there. You know, it used to be the case, didn't it, when when a player sort of said, I wanna I wanna leave the the club almost had to sort of hold his hands up and say, Okay, off you go then, you know, and Brighton just said, No, stay away, wait till the window shuts. And sure enough, he's back in the side, isn't he? And back playing. I don't know if he's at the same level as he was, but he's certainly getting picked by by the, the Brighton manager and they, they certainly trust him enough. So yeah, I don't think they'll be bullied into doing anything that they don't want to do and certainly not for a, a fee that they don't want to uh, sell for. Yeah, my again, feel free to disagree. My reading on this one, it would be like, there's probably targets above this type of player. We know who they are, but we spoke, didn't we, uh, last, uh, a few weeks ago, rather, about when Liverpool didn't get you a many and they decided not to push the button on whoever was next. Obviously, it was Belling was in there as well, but like they decided not to go down that route. I don't think they've got that option this winter, this summer, really. If they can't get options one, two and three, then four, five and six need to be next on the list. Is that how you see yeah. this one as well? Liverpool have always been so, so patient and they've gone, right, don't get in, we'll wait for them or we'll get, we'll get, we'll only do the right deal. It feels like midfield's becoming a point now where whoever it is is probably going to be an upgrade and they can't afford to. So maybe that's where links like this come from. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a very pointed quote from Jürgen Klopp last uh, Friday, wasn't before the Palace game, and he said, the good thing about football is there's a lot of the right players about, he said, didn't he? So, um, you know, that goes against what Liverpool have sort of said in the past, really. Liverpool have almost been of the opinion that now two or three, or one or two uh, are there. But Jürgen Klopp said, no, we, we we need to be active, didn't he? He said it needs to be a big song. We need to do something. And he also, I think he also said, well, he did also say, we need to do it quite early as well before we know whether we're in the Champions League or not. So, you can read into that what you want, but that would suggest to me that movement is already underway on on certain fronts, and certainly that certain targets have been identified and 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 something something has been put in place. So, yeah, I don't think we'll see a situation where Liverpool say, "Oh, we couldn't get him, so we're not going to do anything." <laughs> they can't afford to do that. They need probably two midfielders, probably three, definitely a centre back, maybe yeah. maybe another forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, at the moment, the chances seem slim. But, you know, if this ever does happen, we'll all be going. We should have seen this one coming, the fact that his half fellow was sat next to Liverpool <laughs> at Anfield. Maybe that was a bit of a, a telltale sign. Do you remember, yeah. the last one I remember, that was, uh, was it Sylvan Marvau. Remember him when he was he was in the director's box at Anfield and uh, he ended up going to Newcastle instead of Liverpool, didn't he? But I remember I remember him being at a game once and it was all like, oh, well, he's obviously joined Liverpool. Yeah, he never did. But, no, he never yeah. did. No. Maybe Alexis McAllister, he might, he might be going to that, was it? We'll keep an eye on that one. If, if yeah. Liverpool do sign him, the, the, the Argentinian, remember this one where we actually did, like, yeah, there was probably a big beacon of hope there, wasn't it, that we probably <laughs> maybe, maybe missed? 
Thanks very much to Neil for joining us for that one. And indeed, thank you very much for me. I will take that round of applause as well for hosting the show. Moving on then, speaking of amazing hosts, Chris Pajak and the deep dive. Yeah, Chris and Josh getting stuck in once again. Liverpool Football Club, not only from a tactical point of view, an analytical point of view and a statistical point of view. Chris loves his stats. Josh loves his stats. They all love the analysis. They all love the tactics. And I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy a clip from this week's deep dive. Liverpool, obviously, outgoing director of research, Ian Graham. Uh, he said, I'll go through some quotes and stuff, but I think before we get going, Josh, the, the form's been crap. Um, and, and Ian's been talking about Liverpool's form. And it's probably easier for me to just read it, to be honest with you. So I will do. Uh, it's a very easy message to sell inside the club to say we're not as bad as everyone says we are. We're not as bad as even you may think we are, given the difficulty we've had in achieving results. Uh, our underlying performances are good. And in the long term, you should worry about underlying performances, not the results in the last three games. I think it was Wenger who said he's not interested in the results of the next game. He's interested in the results of the next 10 games. If you go through a 10-game stretch without winning, that does suggest there might be something wrong with our underlying performance. It's a much more difficult message to sell in many ways when we have a season like last season where the message was we're not a 90-plus points team. Very few teams in history have underlying performances that are 90 points. That message, we're not as good as you might think we are, based purely on results, is a much more difficult one to sell. And he goes on to say, inside a club, when we are doing worse than performances would suggest, it is the time to get people on side because you've got a very positive message that few other people in the club are giving. Uh, when, I, when future results reflect the underlying performance, that gives some base. If you say, look, the data analysis we're doing has some grounding in reality. There's some predictive value to it. So please don't overweight this 1-0 loss in a game we should have won one. Uh, I'm not suggesting our performance was good against Madrid, but some of those goals had large elements of luck or unexplained variance included in them. I think pick up on what you thought was the most interesting line from or, or a couple of lines from that then. Yeah, well I think uh, I think generally I do I do agree with what he's saying. I think mostly in you know in football you pe people take such definitive conclusions from results. And because it's such a low scoring sport, you just can't really do that. Um, and the data analysis perspective on it will always be, rather than looking at what actually happened, look at what should have happened, and then you'll get a better gauge into like what's going to happen on a normal week when you're not impacted by luck or variance or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think it goes back to like the standard line of like the league table never lies. Historic comment in the Premier League. It might have been Ferguson or something who said that. But it lies all the time, mate. Um, because the best best performing team doesn't always win in football. It's kind of as simple as that, really. You've got like referees, you've got randomness, luck, penalties, red cards, individual brilliance. Injuries. Injuries, individual moments of madness, you know, Mignolet, <laughs> Lovren, you know. These are influencing factors that result in football not always being decided by performance versus performance in terms of two teams because sometimes you can play horrendously bad and just nick a 1-0. Um, so by looking at the underlying numbers, which are commonly labelled as stats, I just hate that word. I think what, what they are in reality is performance in the cases. Um, and if you look at them... The performance in the cases. Yeah. Not the stats. Well, yeah, to the same thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can gauge um, roughly how, how good you are without looking at the results in the league table. You know what I mean? So I can see where he's coming from, um, and I think Real Madrid is an example that he's used there. It was a bad game. He 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 wouldn't do himself many favours by saying Liverpool played well. But if you look at the goals, 
one was massively deflected. Doesn't usually happen. Vinicius steals it from Allison, who just gives him the ball. Doesn't usually happen. So I can understand why he's looked at that and thought, right, it's definitely not a 5-2. Maybe it was a 3-2 or a 2-all or something like that. Um, and you can use the underlying numbers to kind of debunk those myths. Even in the even in some of the you know more basic of numbers, Liverpool created more ch big chances than Real Madrid in that game. Yeah. You know, it was four to three, I think, in the big chances, uh, which is a bit mental to sort of see. The XG was weighted in Liverpool's favour as well. I think the XG for that game was. Um, one point nine to one point seven. Yeah. Um. So that was even weighted in our favour, and you know, over the course of the season, maybe that sort of balances itself out a touch. But, um, Liverpool, I think, well, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this stuff, and, um, hopefully you'll be able to see on your screen at some point that you know we looked at the XG for and the XG against in in every league and. Champions League game this season where the data is readily available from Opta. We looked at some of the possession stats um, in all of those games and we just quickly looked at the big chances for and the big chances against in all of those games as well. And, you know, I think it was quite interesting for me to sort of have a look at well, how many games did Liverpool actually out XG, which is shit. It's about results, of course. <laughs> the opposition, how many games did we create more big chances than the opposition? And to summarise, Liverpool won 16 drew six and lost nine so far in the games that we've covered. We had the best XG in 22 and lost the XG battle six times and drew the XG battle three times, which is very rare, but thankfully it was the one decimal place, the XG, yeah. which made it a little bit more likely that you actually do have a draw. We won the possession battle 27 times out of 31. One draw, three losses. Now the big chances was interesting, much closer to the reality of how many games we won and lost. 13 times we won the big chances, 13 times we lost it, five times we drew it. Um, and some games we got absolutely battered in the big chances. Now, I think one of the ones that really, really, really was painful um, was against Brighton, uh, even Chelsea. Chelsea, they had four big chances when we drew against them 0-0 and we didn't have a single, a single big chance. But what I'm trying to say here is, on the XG side of things, we probably are a little bit short of where we needed to be. And I think if you were to look at expected points, we're probably not quite exactly where we're supposed to be. But Liverpool have given up too many easy goals this season. They probably do stem from the big chances that we've conceded against. But like, let's look, let's look a little bit more broadly at some of the attacking numbers because I think you were sort of keen to yeah. to move on to this. Now, Liverpool are third in expected goals. Manchester City and Arsenal are both ahead of them. Liverpool are third in shots on target behind Manchester City and Brighton. Uh, Liverpool are second in big chances created, Premier League only. Liverpool are first in big chances missed. Um, second in accurate passes, second in accurate long passes, third in accurate crosses. Underlying numbers suggest that Liverpool are doing well in all of the attacking categories. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at some of the, the key attacking numbers, as, as you've said there, um, like I picked out the ones that I think generally have a, a, a an impact on a result, usually. Um, and I think that's shots, expected goals, passes into the penalty box, progressive passes, which is just moving the ball forward, mm -hmm. um, and touches in the penalty box. And for all of those, Liverpool are inside the top three in the Premier League. So if you couple that in with the fact that Diaz and Jota have missed most of the season, Gakpo's still in what it's like to play for Liverpool, Nunes the same really. I think you can basically look at that and determine, right, Liverpool's attack is pretty much fine. 
and Liverpool's attack is probably title winning level on a normal day. Yeah. Um, once everything works as normal, the only two teams that can compete with Liverpool in an attacking sense across the major departments are Manchester City <laughs> and Arsenal. Manchester City and Arsenal both happen to be first and second in the Premier League and Liverpool are down towards like sixth at the minute, I think. Um, so overall, if you look at Liverpool's attack, it's pretty fine. It's it is not too much to worry about. Um, but then there's a reason Liverpool are not next to City and Arsenal in the overall Premier League. It's the defensive stats. It's the defensive side of the game, yeah, and that's where we fall down. And that's why, although I understand what Graham's saying, I wouldn't say our underlying performance numbers are good because the defence is, is just not. Um, I mean, lately we've, we've kept four clean sheets in a row in the Premier League, haven't we? Which, is, which was a surprise that I've come across last night. Um, but I do think they, they still need work. And I think ahead of the summer transfer window, because mm -hmm. of those numbers, the basic performance indicators, it's, it's clear that Liverpool don't need to address much in attack. They need to fix the defence. And have you got the defensive numbers there? I don't have the defensive numbers on here in as nice a way, to be perfectly honest with you. But, like, you I've know, got them here, go on, yeah, go for it, mate. Yeah, well, for the same numbers, Liverpool are fourth in the Premier League table for shots faced per match, which is not that bad. We don't face that many, but we are 11th for expected goals against per match. Now, they are so usually... away good chances, that's exactly. what it says to me. Yeah, exactly. They are usually in the same neighbourhood. Usually, if you're fourth for shots faced, you should be above fourth for expected goals against, because the expected goals is based on the shots. But if you're 11th for expected goals against, that means the shots that you're facing are clear-cut quality shots. And that's pretty much summed up by the expected goals attached to each shot. So, for XG per shot faced, Liverpool are bottom. Bottom wow. of the Premier League, 20th. So Liverpool face high quality shots essentially. Um, in the middle, how, goal, how good your goalkeeper is, you can save you some of the time more than you probably yeah, should. Exactly, but you Allison, can't keep giving those shots away. Yeah, Allison's probably our player of the season for me. Um, but also fourth for progressive passes conceded, sixth for progressive uh, sorry sixth for passes into the penalty box conceded, and fourth for touches in the penalty box conceded. So. But top three for Everton in attack, in defence, sixth, sixth-ish, so probably like Europa League level. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cheers, Josh. Cheers, Chris. Right then, last one for you. It's the opposition preview. Yeah, before every single Liverpool game, Steve Plunk finds a fan of the opponents. The title kind of gives it away. Speaks to them, gets the lowdown on their club, what's going right, what's going wrong, how they're feeling as they move into the game against Liverpool Football Club. Obviously, this weekend, Liverpool play Manchester United. So, Steve spoke to Ryan from the United stand to get his thoughts on all things Man U. Unless you don't like football or you sleep under a rock, You've absolutely no idea what this game means to, to English football. So the two teams in very contrasting uh, positions, potentially to what they thought they might be at the start of the season. It was always a work in progress for Manchester United that begrudgingly, I have to say, is, is going quite well. And Liverpool have found themselves in, a, in, a, in a, a vein of form we didn't really anticipate. So from a Manchester United perspective, it'd be really interesting to hear from you, Um Let's go all the way back to when, because I've not spoken to you before, to when Ten Hag joined. What you thought were the were the possibilities for Manchester United, and what you thought the season might hold for you in terms of expectations? Um, I, I, I mean, I could I could quite easily sit here and go, look, I, I'm one of these people that predicted what was going to happen in terms of the success we've been able to see so far, but I I wasn't I wasn't one of those people. Um, I thought that. Top four was a success um, at the start of the season. I thought, I personally, I didn't actually think we were going to get it. I thought we would finish uh, fifth or sixth. Um, obviously, the anomaly seasons that you're seeing, you know, Chelsea and yourself in Liverpool are having is helping that top four push that we are kind of, um, we are finding ourselves in. But no, I mean, when when Ten Hag came in, I was, I was delighted, in fact, because, um, I mean, it was the, the toss-up between him and Poch and um, there was a huge kind of media divide and fan divide that the media did want to go with uh, or seemingly want to go with Poch because I feel like there was a lot more known about him. He's obviously been in the Premier League. He was at um, PSG as well and, and Ten Hag, you know, the Dutch league does get looked down upon, especially when signings move over, managers, etc. as well. Stuff doesn't necessarily work out, but um, no, he's, he's been a, a breath of fresh air. I think everything that's that he's had to deal with He's dealt with perfect. And I think, you know, the results are obviously going our way at the minute, but take those away and just the situations that he's had, as I say, you know, the Ronaldo situation, um, obviously, the, even just something as simple as Rashford being late, I think it was to a meeting before the Wolves game, you know, he gets dropped. These morals and these principles that are being put back in place, um, something as simple as that, you know, it, it does go a long way. Um, obviously, then comes on, proves, proves his worth, scores the goal and has been arguably the most informed player since the World Cup, right? And and that that man management that he's shown, um, just the, the the little details that we haven't seen in so long go such a long way. I go back to the Carabao Cup um, win that we just obviously experienced and him bringing out all of his staff to have a photo and lift the trophy as well. Th- these things, these things are obviously, we weren't winning many trophies, but they, they, you can guarantee they wouldn't have been happening under, under previous management. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a huge, drastic change and the trajectory is only, you know, kind of up from here, I hope. Yeah, that's very well articulated. I think, I think let's put the Carabao Cup into perspective. I think both sets of rival fans will play it down when the other one wins it. You did when we did and we, to some degree, some of our fans have when you have. 
Um, let's be honest, in, in Ten Hag's uh, stewardship at the, re- at the helm in Manchester United, this is the first trophy. I recall a certain guy went by the name of the special one. His first trophy for the Chelsea was the, the League Cup as well. So it all has to start somewhere. You're quite right. So in terms of uh, let's let's get let's get into the weekend's game. Obviously, Manchester United in a rich vein of form at the moment. Um, was looking like a difficult fixture midweek. Turn it round, win the game. Don't even know, need to go to extra time. Um, I heard an interview with Ten Hag about did you want to bring on Casemiro and Rashford? He says he did. It was always planned. Uh, is that the difference? Is, is is the difference fundamentally with Manchester United at the moment is, first of all, you get an identity of how you play. And I know Manchester United fans don't like this, and I'd be interested to get your take on it. The rest of English football sees Manchester United at this moment largely as a counter-attacking side. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because we did it when when first when Klopp first came to Liverpool, because sometimes you don't have the bodies you need to, to, to deliver the system that you want. So you make the best of what you've got. Would that be fair to say? No, I, I'm. I don't disagree with the fact. Look, and different. It's the same. It's different horses for courses, isn't it? I think um, different games will warrant different styles of play. And I can. Yeah, I think the majority. I was at the game last night, and from the 60th minute on, we absolutely dominated West Ham. And uh, some people watching this will be like, you know, that's no, that's no feat. Um, you know, West Ham are kind of in a relegation battle at the minute, but. There's context and perspective that needs to come in in the sense that we have we've been playing three games a week for literally over a month now, um, and it, it we we're literally in a completely different position than what we were in you know uh, just just what a year ago probably even less than that so um, there's there's nothing wrong with right now in some aspects being a counter attacking team I don't think personally um, because yes Eric Ten Hag has brought in bodies that have strengthened the squad and he's getting. Um, a lot out of players like Fred, um, like, well, even Rashford, not, you know, loads of people, including myself, to some degree, would have been writing off these guys and, and uh, some even to the extent of wanting to sell them. He's getting the best out of these players. So, you know, he's come a long way even from those first two games against Brentford and Brighton, um, you know, two horrific fixtures. And to be in the position we're in, you know, regardless of whatever whatever style of play you're playing. If you're winning football matches, it works, right? But I can guarantee that what we're doing right now isn't what Eric Ten Hag wants to do long-term in terms of style of play. He will want to dominate the ball a lot more. Um, he will want that high line, you know, to, to basically play from the halfway line with his centre-backs. And there just is a, a big drop-off, you know, when you take certain players out of the team, like your Martinez and Varane, you drop down to Maguire and Lindelof. Not that they don't do a good enough job but then again you have to change your style of play because you know they're not as quick they're not as agile their their ability isn't quite there um you know take out Casemiro Scott McTominay isn't as good quite clearly uh so yeah I, I feel like squad depth is the next thing that we need to fully kind of uh go out and get in the transfer market however however that may um you know with the new owners we, we don't quite know what's going to happen with that but for me, I have no issue with being a counter-attacking side at the minute because I know long-term that isn't what Eric Ten Hag wants to do. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do with the players that are available to you. And if that's your strength, you know, you'd always be uh, able to counter because of the pace of Marcus Rashford. And, and as you said at the, at the top of the shop, um, he's probably the most informed player in, in the Premier League since the, since the World Cup. Arguably one of the most informed players in Europe and therefore the world. 
Um, I don't mind saying that. I can appreciate a good footballer when I see one, and he certainly is that. So got, looking ahead to the week to the weekend's game, history dictates that wherever you are in the league doesn't really matter because in the 70s and 80s when we were dominating, Manchester United always were able to throw a spanner in the works. Um, when you guys were dominating, there were games when we, we brought Steven Gerrard and Torres to Old Trafford and 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 turned you over, you know, by three or four goals. So the, you yeah. never can see these games come in, and 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 more recently in recent times when we've been really good, you, you guys are always difficult opponents to play against. I think league tables are the last thing you think about when you're going into those games. It's one-upmanship, it's intense rivalry, it's it's the banter value for social media and stuff like that. Yeah. Question for you: Are Manchester United coming to Anfield to win the game, or are Manchester United coming to Anfield to give a really good account of themselves and potentially get something from the game? No, of course. I think I think that's I think the mentality has shifted now. Um, of course, we're gonna we're gonna try and win the game. Uh, I, I mean, I go back to when we actually played Barcelona away, and a lot of fans were uh, of, uh, including myself, kind of going get nick a draw. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd bite your hand off for that and leave and take them back to Old Trafford and beat them, which ultimately is what we did. But Eric Ten Hag made it quite clear that he wasn't, that wasn't the intention, that wasn't the plan. He's going there to play on the front foot, win the game comfortably. Um, so that is it. That's the mentality shift. Whatever game of football we're going into now, whether it is uh, West Ham in the Cup, whether it is Liverpool away, whether it is uh, Burnley in the Carabao Cup, one of those rounds, we're going to try and win that game of football. Um, I, I, I mean, as, as, I mean, it's perfect, as you say. Certain games, it doesn't matter where you are in the league. These, these big derbies, big rivalries, they're almost one-off games in themselves. It's almost like, forget about where you are. You know, Man United could be 20th, Liverpool could be first, but it's just that one-off game. Everyone's up for it. And I feel like Eric Ten Hag is going to, Get get the best out of these players in these derby games. He's almost going to revitalise what it means to to play for Manchester United in these games. And I'm sure, obviously, Jurgen Klopp has has been able to do that with the with the Liverpool side in not just the Man United games, not just you know your Everton rivalry as well. Multiple games throughout the years that he's been in charge. So, yeah, I, I'm expecting a. Uh, I mean, what might not be necessarily a good game football wise, but you know, an entertaining. Um, you know, battle really and what it could be because it is realistically, it is a huge game of football um, for both teams in terms of the league as well. Even though if you want to forget about it for those 90 minutes, it is it is huge for both teams. Cheers, Steve. Cheers, Ryan. I'd say best of luck to Ryan, but that would be an absolute lie. But best of luck to Steve. Uh, yeah, hopefully your team wins, mate, because that means my team wins. Right then, that is it for this week's Red Men Weekly. Hope you enjoyed listening to all those shows. Like I say, they're all available, both in video and podcast forms, over on redmenplus.com. Sign up as a yearly club captain. Use the code weekly, get it for half price. 25 quid for the entire year's worth of content. It's an absolute bargain, really, giving it away too cheaply but I want to give you guys a favour you listen to this show each and every week which I really really appreciate so in return going to give you a little something something loads of you have used that code already hopefully you guys are enjoying it but there's more to come each and every week on Redmen Plus so yeah redmenplus.com use the weekly code sign up as a club captain on a yearly subscription and you'll get it for 50% off right I'm going to stop talking because you guys have got your lives to get on with thank you very very much for listening to this week's episode of Redmen Weekly and we'll catch you next week goodbye This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.